Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Hello and welcome to Nerdfest Podcast. Today we have with us... Dan Watkins. Andy Chandler. Peter Johnson. And I'm John Farthing. Today we have a film buff or film bluff for you, plus lots of other exciting goodies. Exciting. Exciting. (laughs) So let's get started. John Wes Hazel, why are you hosting today? Well, we've got Andy with us, and I think I can see in the background what looks like a burlap sack with Thor's hammer on top of it, which appears to be twitching. It's just a trick of the light. Pay no attention to the sack. Uh, I believe you have a statement from our regular host. I do, yes. Sadly, Hazel is not feeling very well. She'll be back with us uh, on the next episode, I'm sure. But for now, I'm just going to read a lovely statement that she herself has written. Uh, Hi nerds, sorry I'm not well enough to take part in this episode. I hope you and our lovely listeners have a great time without me. I look forward to being with you at the next recording. She goes on to say, Whilst I have been stuck in bed, I have taken some time to review some of my previously aired opinions. It turns out that Thor Ragnarok is a terrible film and should be condemned to rot in nerd jail. Taika Waititi is about as funny as stepping on an upturned electrical plug in bare feet. And finally, Chris Hemsworth is a decent actor, but isn't really all that good looking, and I don't see what all the fuss is about. <laughs> Her words. That so- sounds legit. Yeah. Well, uh, at least she hasn't turned on Hamilton. Just in case you thought that I might have made any part of that up, which is a very cynical thing to think. Uh, she also <laughs> says, Hamilton rules, Hamilton forever, I love Hamilton, which of course proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was Hazel. That really does sound like a... I'm convinced. Mm. Completely convinced, yes. Oh, it's like the foundation of the podcast has been rocked here with, with these revelations. If, you, if, if Louise appears in an episode of the podcast talking about how I thought Mandy was actually a bit disappointing, then <laughs> send help. I'm a bit worried, actually, that Louise isn't on this podcast. I'm, I'm worried now like, because we've got, a, we've got a new puppy and my entire hand and arms are covered in scratches. So if Louise disappears and I'm interviewed by the police, basically I look like a man that has just murdered my partner and is trying to pass it off poorly. Well, this recording will now stand as evidence, I assume. Good point, actually, yes. Let's delete that, <laughs> having given away my plan. So um, James Bond is now not with us until next year. We talked last time about mm. the replacement for James Bond. It seems that's going to be even further in the future now. It'll probably be replaced by an Android or something by the time they eventually release it. <laughs> we'll just have it injected directly into our eyeballs via some magic future serum. You'll get your corona vaccine and it will also give you a free copy of James Bond 25 directly into your vein. Is this going to be like the U2 album on all of the iPods again? <laughs> yeah, Tim Cook or Steve Jobs was like, well, it's a, it's free. You know, it's like, but if you came up and shit through my letterbox, so now I've got a big shit <laughs> in my hallway. And you went, oh, it's a free gift from Bono. You know, that's not okay. You'd not be surprised, though, would you? No, I wouldn't. Classic Bono. Whenever someone shits from my letterbox, I just assume it's Bono. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you will keep saying those things about him. Yeah, because the Edge is the one who likes to throw bricks through the window, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I once got egged by Lavi Mullen. (laughs) Is he one of the other ones? (laughs) One of the other ones. (laughs)
So we've got some uh, film bus or film bluffs this week. Who would like to start? I've got three facts about masks in movies. Because, as we know, everyone should be wearing one. So here are three film stars or characters who have worn masks. Wasn't, wasn't mask a, like a bad guy organisation in something? Is that right? Ooh. Yes. When I was a kid in the 80s, Mask was a cartoon series and some action figures. Yeah. Was it G.I. Joe adjacent or was it separate? Did we get G.I. Joe here? I thought it was just basically Action Man. I thought it was only America they got G.I. Joe. I think Action Man was G.I. Joe. They just changed the name. Mask were very small figures. The Mask figures were the same size as the Star Wars figures. Whereas I think mm. G.I. Joe and Action Man were bigger, were they not? Were they not like 12-inch Oh, I heard a weird Star Wars fact today, which I'm sure is not news to Dan. It was that when Peter Mayhew was filming in the forest of California for uh, one of the movies, he had to have like guards with him wearing um, brightly coloured vests and things. So no one shot him as though he was Bigfoot. Mm. Makes I sense. I did not know that. He <laughs> <laughs> apparently confirmed it on uh, Reddit, Ask Me Anything. Yeah, that, that famous footage is actually just him between takes on Return of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I've got yes, three, yes. masks. Sorry, Dad. Yes. I don't. I don't have um, any facts about the cartoon series Mask, but uh, my first fact is about the Jim Carrey film The Mask. Are we carry or carry? What do you think? I say carry. 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 It is. Fact number one: makeup for Jim Carrey on The Mask would take up to four hours a day, but his part in the film wasn't written with Carrey in mind. It almost went to Nerdfest favourite Nicolas Cage. Ooh. Number two. El Santo was a legendary masked luchador who also appeared in over 50 movies. He only ever removed his mask and revealed his face in public once. He was even buried wearing the mask. And number three. Tom Hardy's Bane is known for his mask and his lovely, lovely voice. <laughs> to preserve that lovely, lovely voice between scenes, Hardy would drink a honey and ginger tea through a hole in his mask designed to stick a straw in. Oh, I like that very much. Mm -hmm. One of these masky facts is a masky made up. I'll start by analysing fact number two. I am familiar with El Santo. Um, I, I, I think he's probably the most famous Mexican wrestler of all time and he did star in many films and definitely was buried in his mask. Um, I think that one is almost certainly true, although the idea that he did once reveal his true face in public it may actually be the bluff. It could have been that he literally never did that because that's the kind of seriousness with which they take wrestling in Mexico. So that's no help, sorry. Some of El Santo's films, I think, would be right up John Street. I think I've seen some of them. Uh, El Santo versus the Vampire Women sounds really good to me. Mm -hmm. So he's, he keeps a mask on throughout the entire movie? Yeah. El, El Santo never takes his mask off, because that, that is the character. It's, I guess, like Batman without the Bruce Wayne. Like Batman wouldn't take his mask off halfway through a fight, and nor would El Santo. I was watching the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. He can't keep his fucking mask on in those films, can he? Well, freedom, John. It's his choice. <laughs> <laughs> He's on the subway train and the mask is off and basically hundreds of people see him and yet he still somehow keeps his mysterious identity. Yes. Because no one has phones or video anymore. No. That's why. That's why, yes. Have we seen the remastered Spider-Man game? Well, they've changed his face, haven't they? Yeah, so he looks as much like Tom Holland without legally looking like Tom Holland as possible. 
I saw them claim it was to make him a better representation of the voice actor that they all love. And you just think, mm, that's a bit convenient. Where's your, where's your photograph of that voice actor just to prove that's who <laughs> it really looks like? But I did see photos of the voice actor and they do look very similar. Ah, that's handy. Yeah. And this is after they gave the voice actor lots of plastic surgery <laughs> to resemble Tom Holland so they could get away with their, their cunning plan. Yes. So does anybody need a recap of these facts, <laughs> seeing as none of them are about Spider-Man? <laughs> the, the mask could well have been Nicolas Cage, if not for Jim Carrey slash Carrey. That is correct. Mm. Is uh, quite a lot of fun. Um, it's a very manic performance, and there's not many people I could imagine in the role other than Jim Carrey, but Nicolas Cage could have done a perhaps even more unhinged version. That would have been interesting. Annoyingly, I, I did listen to the film stories thing about the mask only about two or three weeks ago. I can't be sure about that one. It does. It sounds plausible enough, which is what's mm. great about it as a bluff. It sounds like something I would know. And the fact that I don't know it makes me think that it's a bluff. What, what did Bane drink specifically? Because it sounded a bit of a, a girly drink for <laughs> Tom Harder. Oh, specifically. I imagine he'd just drink oil. Oil and the blood of his enemies. <laughs> specifically, it was honey and ginger tea, which mm. helps your voice. If... You're talking in Bane voice all day. Can we hear your Bane voice, Dad? Yes! <laughs> this is my Bane voice. Um, actually, I've got a mug here. I normally do it through a mug. We talk like Bane. <laughs> I was born in the darkness. And so on. It does sound a bit like Bane in the uh, Harley Quinn cartoons, doesn't it, John? Yes. <laughs> Who is a much better character. I remember 2012. Everyone had a Bane impression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good times, better times. Uh, I I believe the Bane one. I think that's quite likely. Uh, the the original version of the voice that he would have been doing on set um, was much more gruff and gravelly, and would definitely hurt your vocal cords. Um, I'm I'm inclined to go with that. And the El Santo one. I'll be very interested to find out what was the one occasion on which he took his mask off. But I think I believe that. So I reckon Nicolas Cage as the mask is my vote for the bluff. I think I'm going to go the same. I'm also going to go the same. And you'd all be wrong. Ah! There, there were a few actors shortlisted for the role that went to Jim Carrey in The Mask. Nicolas Cage was one of them. Even more strangely, Rick Moranis was another. But I could see Nicolas Cage in that role. I think he possibly at full cage is the only person who could match Jim Carrey in that film. Mm. And he was shortlisted. I'm not sure he'd be a great Stanley Ipkiss. Downtrodden Cage mm. could maybe manage mm. it. I feel like it would have been a darker film with him in it. Yeah, because the comics The Mask was based on are pretty dark and violent, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, very much, yeah. It wouldn't have been the same film, certainly. So El Santo, that is true as well. Uh, the one time he took his mask off was on a Mexican TV show that aired about a week before he died. He just took the mask up to about his forehead and gave the audience like a little reveal of his face and put it back down again. But there is footage and it does exist. Mm. So we know what El Santo looked like. Interesting. Might you've done that so someone couldn't take over from him and be the El Santo instead of him? His son did take over and was known as El Hijo del Santo, the son of El Santo. And now I think his grandson is a luchador as well. So it is a family tradition, but... Yeah, the mask itself has to change. Your mask is your mask, and I don't think you can inherit them. 
But yeah, El Santo did once reveal his mask, but he was buried wearing it. That means that the bluff is Tom Hardy. Um, lovely as it sounds, I did make up the idea of him having a little hole in his mask to suck uh, a lovely voice-soothing tea through. Oh, hmm. It's a very super bluff. I enjoy the image. But he did keep his mask on, everyone. Be like Bane. <laughs> Be like Bane. Be like Tom Hardy's entire movie career. <laughs> so um, when's this podcast going out, Peter? Is it a week and a half after we record, approximately? It's a week after. Okay. It's a shame Donald Trump died, isn't it? <laughs> it's a shame Donald Trump got better, isn't it? <laughs> Covering your bases, then. Use as you see fits. We live in a Can I go next? You sure. can go next, John. Okay, um, I have got weird things directors did, but with all kind of this a... Is suitable for a family podcast? Yes, it's very family-friendly, unlike the rest of the podcast. Yeah, um, I was going to say, since when have we been a family <laughs> podcast? <laughs> It's the Adams family, obviously. Mm-hmm. Can we give a shout to um, our, our listener friend, Jenny Winter, who pulled us up on Twitter for being very rude in the last episode. So I'd like to apologise. Actually, no, Jenny can fuck off. I thought she was <laughs> encouraging us. I think she was encouraging us a little bit, yes. <laughs> Actually, she called my puppy a <laughs> the other week. <laughs> Jenny has no... Context? <laughs> what happened? It was in an improv sketch. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> but nonetheless... She said to Ripley's face, my badger thinks your dogs are <laughs> I have a whole new impression of Jenny now. <laughs> okay, so um, I have things directors have done and they've all got a kind of religious or spiritual bent, seen as we are recording on a Sunday and the podcast goes out on a Sunday. I thought we'd have a little bit of spirituality and religion brought in. It's a bit late for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So um, the first one is that the set of The Exorcist was actually exorcised by a priest. During the filming, odd things happened. At one point, the set caught on fire and the entire set was destroyed, apart from Reagan's bedroom, which stayed mysteriously untouched. So the director, William Friedkin, brought an actual priest on set to bless the set and get rid of any demonic presence in order to allow filming to continue. Hmm. The second one is that Martin Scorsese was so upset by the response to New York, New York, before making his next film, Raging Bill. Raging Bull. Raging Bill. Tell us about Raging Bill. Raging Bill is... (laughs) This is Clinton documentary, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Scorsese was so upset by the response to New York, New York, before making his next film, Raging Bull, he felt he needed to actually put the ghost of New York, New York to rest, and he therefore actually held a funeral for it, which included burying a canister containing a print of the film in a grave, whilst the priest and Robert De Niro both gave eulogies to the film as if it was a real person. Hmm. Finally, we've all heard of morality clauses in contracts and so on which means like actors have to behave a certain way so as not to bring the film into disrepute. I think Brandon Ruth famously had to sign one for Superman. So Cecil B. DeMille was the director of Biblical Epics, who was very keen on maintaining the spiritual nature of his film. For the film King of Kings, he made his stars enter into contracts that prohibited them from doing anything unbiblical for five years after the film was released. Unbiblical included things such as attending baseball games, going to nightclubs, or even driving a convertible car. All of the things which he thought were banned by the Bible. Wow. What did the Bible have to say about convertible cars? 
Thou shalt not pull thy top down on thy <laughs> boulevard of Hollywood. Uh-huh. So, John, I haven't seen New York, New York. Is it so bad that you would need to have a funeral for it? It's one of those films that has been critically reappraised. So I think it's kind of acknowledged as a classic now, and it was the first kind of realistic musical. So what he did was he shot this realistic New York drama uh, love story, but the characters would break out into song and dance, and it was shot like an old-school MGM musical. So it was the idea of putting realistic characterization into a musical. Um, so things like La La Land and so on probably would not have existed. And it's acknowledged as a classic now, but at the time the reviews were brutal and it was a massive, massive flop. So I think it was Scorsese's first real, I don't want to say misfire because it's a great film, but certainly his first critical and commercial misstep. Mm. I don't know a lot about Scorsese as a person. Uh, the, just the impression I've gotten from him from interviews and his work is that he'd probably be a little more realistic than that. It seems a slightly cartoonish thing for him to do, but does anyone else have any insight into what kind of guy he is? Is he superstitious or anything? He's, he's very spiritual, yeah, he's made a few religious films. Last Temptation of Christ, which was 80s, and more recently Silence is mm. all about two priests bringing Catholicism to Japan. So he's definitely got that religious spiritual side to him. He actually wanted to be a priest before he became a filmmaker. Oh. He originally planned to train to be a, a Catholic priest. There's, there's that theme of redemption and sin throughout all his films mm -hmm. and yeah silence doesn't get talked about among his great films i don't think it it landed particularly well when it came out but i saw it earlier this year and it is fantastic mm. it's really really good um but i just can't imagine a scorsese film getting a critical mauling i know that this actually happened with new york new york but it just seems odd that people really disliked one of his films mm. um then again it, i sort of feel the same about spielberg in 1941 was that around the same time as New York, New York? Yeah, so you had this thing, it was around the time of like Apocalypse Now and Heaven's Gate, that kind of era of a kickback against big budget director excesses. Mm. That You know, the old kind of build them up and knock them down thing, so it kind of fell in with that a little bit. But I think, I mean, King of Comedy, I think, didn't do well on its release. Oh, that's another great one. After Hours, he had a rough time in the 80s. Mm. Mm. New York, New York's quite famous, obviously, for its theme tune, which mm -hmm. everyone assumes is like an old 40s tune, but it was written straight for that film, wasn't it? Mm. I think so, yes. Yeah. yeah. I did assume it was one of these 40s type songs. So there we are. Uh -huh. It's an absolutely beautiful film. Watch it. It's so, so good. Watch it on the biggest screen you can. And if you go out with a metal detector, you'll be able to dig up a free copy somewhere. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> And speaking of watching things, should I have watched that making of documentary when I did The Exorcist for my shameful gap earlier this year, John? Would that have revealed your first fact? Probably, because it would it, it would either have revealed it or it would probably <laughs> have not revealed it if it was a bluff, because it, the, the documentary on it is fairly uh, exhaustive. So if such a thing did happen, it probably would have been talked about. I don't know, from the stories I've heard about William Friedkin on the set, would he have been worried enough to do an exorcism himself or would he have just got on with it he permanently injured one of the actors backs um he fired shotguns randomly to create an air unease and he had the set refrigerated so you could see everyone's breath so the poor actors were freezing well 
If he did that kind of thing and he genuinely believed that there was a demonic spirit on the set, wouldn't he have thought, great, fantastic, we'll use this mm-hmm. and kept it there? Maybe the demonic spirit was him. William Peter Blatty, who was the writer, is a very strong, staunch Catholic. But Friedkin, as far as I'm aware, I think he's Jewish, or, but certainly not particularly religious. And the reason The Exorcist works so well is you've got that clash of a film written by a very staunch believer in sin and the devil and the exorcist and then somebody who was quite cynical that did like the French Connection and things like that. Does anybody know much about Cecil B. DeMille? I mean, I've seen pictures of his incredibly epic sets and studio productions. He seems like the type to put something ridiculous in the contracts. Would that even be enforceable? In the old studio system, anything was enforceable. They basically owned those actors. But do religious people ever like to kind of force their beliefs on others? <laughs> is it necessarily a religious thing? Is it just you can't market something as being this religious biblical film mm-hmm. if your actors are then going off doing non-biblical things? I mean, it's why Mel Gibson's Christian films were always so successful. <laughs> of course. How many of the cast uh, had to sign these contracts, John? Four of them. <laughs> Your face says you just made that up, John. Yeah, uh, I did just make up the four of them. Um, I don't know is the answer. Um, as far as I'm aware, it just said, uh, the, the the fact that I read or didn't read just said the actors, so presumably the entire cast. They would have had a cast of hundreds. Cast of thousands. Mm. Cast of millions. Everyone on planet Earth. These were proper big-scale epics done in the days before CGI, so they would literally have... Thousands and thousands of extras in some of the scenes. It seems far-fetched, but I can believe it. Mm. I am going to go Scorsese as the bluff. I'm going to go Exorcist as the bluff. Just to complete the set, I'm going to go the five-year clause as a bluff. Oh, well, I am pleased to announce that Daniel Watkins is correct. Yes. Martin Scorsese oh. did not hold a mock funeral for New York, New York, burying the film in a graveyard whilst Robert De Niro gave a eulogy. And if you hear me say that again and how ridiculous that sounds, I'm surprised that not more of you got that. I feel very stupid now. Thank you, John. (laughs) Well done. Uh, You you fooled two-thirds of us there. I did. I'm very proud of myself. For contrast, I have three statements about TV icon Metal Mickey. I'm going to place a bet that I am the only other person on this podcast who has heard of Metal Mickey. I believe looking at uh, the faces of myself and Andy, you would be correct in that. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to take my headphones off for 10 seconds, and I I will return shortly. I think Metal Mickey's in the house with him. Has he got to go get some Metal Mickey TV annual for 1978 or something? (laughs) It's quite possible. He's back. What's he got? (sighs) Explain. Fire the fuck away. Yes, I was right. Metal Mickey. Oh, he's a robot. For, for the audio listeners, I have the 1983 and 1985 <laughs> Metal Mickey annuals wow. in front of me. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Okay, good. Um, so this is Metal Mickey, who first appeared on ITV kids show The Saturday Banana and then had a brief spurt of popularity, I thought, in the 70s, but apparently his fame lasted into the 80s by the looks of things. So, the three facts are, one, the robot was created, controlled, and voiced by someone who played guitar in a band with David Bowie. Number two, after an ITV producer saw the robot and Jim will fix it, he commissioned a TV show, which was really successful. And the fact is that it was produced and directed by Mickey Dolenz of The Monkees. 
And for the third fact, although Metal Mickey was a kids' TV character, his name was used as Cockney rhyming slang for a quick shag. Metal Mickey Quickie. <laughs> yes. Uh, mm. So, which is true and which is false? Could you confirm the guitarist in the first fact, or would that give it away? Well, it was created, controlled and voiced by Johnny Edward. So, John, how are you up on David Barry's early career? I'm going to be quiet on this because I think I know the answer. Is the answer in the annual? It is in the annuals, yes. Well, for the first one, um, it was created by the guitarist of David Bowie. Um, I'm going to believe that's true because drugs. Um, <laughs> oh, what were the other ones? The second one was... The second one was about the monkeys, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the Mickey Dill ends of the monkeys. I heard, I heard Jim will fix it and started screaming inside my head. <laughs> so... Not to get too far down a Jim will fix it route, was that on at the time that Metal Mickey would have first found fame? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, that isn't that isn't the fact. So yes, it's true. No. Okay. <laughs> and then the third one was that his name was used as Cockney rhyming yes. slang for a quick shag. Mm-hmm. Mm. How exact mm. are we being on these bluffs? Pretty exact. Which mm, bit right. of wording do you want to question? Can I have the first one exactly again, please? <laughs> <laughs> the robot was created, controlled and voiced by someone who played guitar in a band with David Bowie. Okay. I'm not claiming it's Carlos, whatever he's called. Mm. Or was it Mick Ronson who was in The Spiders from Mars? <laughs> yeah, Mick Ronson. I'm going to say Cockney rhyming slang because I think a quick shag is probably the... You don't really need to rhyming slang that, do you? I'm off of a metal. Yeah. I'm going to go for Cockney rhyming slang as well, just because I, I assume that John has all of his knowledge of Metal Mickey from those annuals. Um, he seems to know what the answer is, and I very much doubt that it would talk about Cockney rhyming slang for naughty activities <laughs> in such a thing. Good logic. Right, okay, so you've had your choice. I'm going to now see whether Peter is being an arse or not. <laughs> More than usual. Because... John Edwards was in a band called the Manish Boys, but he was not in that band with David Bowie. He was in that band with David Jones, who later changed his name <laughs> to David Bowie oh, and became David Bowie. That is the same person and you know it. It is the same person, but no, depending on how pedantic Peter wants to be. Okay, that is not my bluff. He is okay, the same person. In that case, it's, it's the Cockney rhyming slang, because the other two are, are correct. <laughs> okay, so number one, that he was in a band with David Bowie. That is true. He was a record producer and he played in a band called the Manish Boys who released a song called I Pity the Fool. It wasn't a hit and Bowie left. And they're not star of um, the B.A. Baracus? No. Um, he also wrote cod Italian song Save Your Love for René and Renato. Save your love, my darling, save your love. Did you know that, John? I did. The second fact... It is true. It was produced and directed by Mickey Derlens of the Monkees, who was also did things like theatre production in the West End and various things in England. The one I made up was the Cockney rhyming slang, but it is actually Cockney rhyming slang for pulling a sickie. Ah. The series was phenomenally successful. It had a viewing audience of 12 million. He released six singles, and it was so successful the BBC moved Doctor Who so it didn't have to compete for the tea time audience. <laughs> wow. I remember very much on a Saturday evening watching Metal Mickey with my parents and it was one of my favourite shows as a child, hence why I have the Metal Mickey annuals, which I'm holding up on the audio podcast. 
Oddly enough, both your first two correct facts had a bit of a monkey's theme as well, indirectly, because David Jones changed his name to David Bowie. Oh, true. Yeah. Because of David Jones in The Monkeys. I was thinking you might have thought that was the reason I'd picked on Mickey Dolan, mm-hmm. or all because of Mickey. Yeah. That that's the first person I thought of to suggest, but you didn't fall for that. <laughs> I have a question. What kind of show was his show? Was it like a fictional Doctor Who sci-fi thing? Was it a panel show? Was he a stand-up? No, it, what? it was a fairly corny comedy show. Like okay. a, a family sitcom. Very ITV. Okay. I only saw a few episodes of Metal Mickey as well before deciding it was crap and I didn't want to watch it anymore. <gasps> you take that back. <laughs> have, have you seen one since, John? Yes, I, uh, I was bizarrely watching the uh, the single the other day on YouTube. <laughs> I not thought about Metal Mickey probably for 20, 30 years maybe. And um, my mum and dad are sorting out the loft and spare rooms and everything and brought up boxes full of books that I had as a child and decide which I wanted to keep and which could go in the bin. So I'm currently sorting through a pile of my childhood books and the first ones on the top were the uh, the two Metal Mickey albums, which led me down a weird Metal Mickey Wikipedia wormhole. So if these were the ones you wanted to keep, what the hell were the ones you wanted to throw away like? Ross Cartoon Club. Jim <laughs> will fix it annual. <laughs> there was not a Jim fix it annual. Yeah, I've still got my Gladiators annual from the 90s. Who was your favourite Gladiator? Warrior. Cobra. Jet. Jet. <laughs> <laughs> like any normal red-blooded male. You can tell we're a few years older than the other two, so when the Gladiators was on, we'd already entered our adulthood, so to speak. <laughs> Have I ever told you about the time I met Saracen from Gladiators at work? No. He was uh, visiting with a charity and there were various celebrities of varying levels of fame with the group, some people from Emmerdale, famous TV writers, and Saracen from Gladiators was there and I was unreasonably excited about the fact that one of the Gladiators was actually there and I did get my photo with him and he was still wearing his Gladiators fleece that he must have got from when he worked on the show some 15 years previously and who could blame him quite right Mm -hmm. he's still a very tall and looks like the kind of man who could compete in gladiators even today go saracen go saracen indeed go wolf go wolf yeah how dare you john he was great i think some of the gladiators might have been on steroids (laughs) just throwing that out only shadow when he got fired I remember as a kid when Shadow was in the first couple of series and then not in any of the others. I mm. wondered what had happened to him, but clearly hadn't been watching the news and the press conference where he had to announce that he was no longer part of the show. Peter's eyes will glaze over or fondly at this, but does anybody else remember Jet as the games mistress on Games World, the Sky Games Master ripoff? Great for rubber fetishists. Jet from Gladiators. Diane Udale is her name. She would dress up in rubber as a schoolmistress with a whip and a hat and tell people they were naughty boys for not being good at playing computer games and then give them tips to make them better in a slightly domineering fashion. Crikey. And this was on at tea time. <laughs> this was, this was, this was tea time five times a week, yeah. <laughs> ah, fond memories. <laughs> Andy, you've got some buffs and bluffs. I have. How did you know? Well, I'm going to talk to you about the promotional gimmicks of William Castle. Oh, Ooh. the tingler. 
Uh-oh, you're going to know these. Uh, William Castle <laughs> was a filmmaker active from the 40s to the 70s. He first gained a reputation as a director who could churn out competent B-movies quickly and on budget. He later struck out on his own, producing and directing low-budget thrillers, and he's most famous for using outlandish gimmicks to promote his films. So here are three promotional tactics employed by William Castle. Two are true, and one I have made up. Number one, um, the 1961 film Homicidal. At the film's climax, with the heroine approaching a house harbouring a sadistic killer, a fright break was presented to the audience, so any viewer who was too frightened to watch the remainder of the film had an opportunity to leave the theatre and get their money back. To do so, you had to attend a yellow cardboard booth labelled Coward's Corner in full view (laughs) of the rest of the audience, where you had to sign a yellow card stating, I am a bona fide coward. Number two, Macabre from 1958. On the first night in each new town, Castle would plant an actor in the audience who would scream and fake a heart attack towards the end of the movie. A second actor would proclaim themselves to be a doctor, inspect the unfortunate victim, and, as the film reel was paused just before the climax, loudly declare that the person had died of fright. Theatre staff would then remove the corpse before resuming the film. (laughs) Number three, The Tingler. From 1959, the title character is a creature which attaches itself to the human spinal cord. It feeds on fear and can only be destroyed by screaming. So Castle would attach vibrating motors to the undersides of some of the theatre seats, which were activated during the finale, wherein the film's star, Vincent Price, speaks directly to camera and informs the audience that the tingler is now loose in their theatre and that they must scream, scream for your lives. These are three facts. Except they're not. Two of them are facts and one of them is a silly lie. Which? I'm a big fan of William Castle, um, mm. so I'm afraid I know this. I suspected you might. <laughs> What's the movie with, I think, John Goodman about Castle? Uh, Matinee. Oh, yeah. It's really, really good. Um, John Goodman basically playing a William Castle-like figure who is bringing his new film, Mant, to a local cinema. It's a Joe Dante film who is a director who really loves cinema and is really aware of the history of that sort of exploitation cinema. And I don't want to say schlock cinema, but like B-movies and road movies. And it's a film that's made with a real, real love for its source material and a real affection. Um, I can't recommend it enough. It's kind of been forgotten about. And the film within a film, Mant, which features the guy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Dick Miller and a lot of like the classic actors of that era, and it's like a spoof of all the tropes, is a film I would like to see in itself. Uh, so as, as far as the facts go, they all sound familiar, which is kind of interesting. I, I'm sure I remember the phrase Fright Break from somewhere. And I like the sound of that. I would definitely take one of those and go to Coward's Corner, because I'm terrible <laughs> at scary films. <laughs> and I don't care who knew it. Everyone would know it. Everyone would point and laugh. That's fine. I, I would like it to be true. I'd rather be laughed at than scared. I mean, the dyed one is the sort of thing they would do. They would promote with things like insurance policies if anyone died during the performance of Fright. Mm-hmm. Didn't you go to see Little Shop of Horrors where they would have someone in the audience who would get pulled up by the plant at the climax? Yeah, they used to do that in some performances. Mm-hmm. They were on a wire in the front or second row. Yeah, the recent Brian Cranston production of Network at the National Theatre had somebody like that who appeared from the audience at the end mm. and uh, pulled a gun on him. Yes, um, did you, I, I went to see that. It was great. Mm. I had uh, I was slightly distracted because I had the Lord Mayor of London sat in front of me, who for some reason decided to go and see it with Gary Barlow of Take That. 
Right. But he's a very, very good player. Very, very good player. I mean, we bought really cheap tickets for it and then discovered that they were in the third row somehow. Mm. So thank you, National Theatre. I remember, yes. I spent several hundred pounds on tickets so we're not as good as yours <laughs> and we were <laughs> six feet away from cranston doing his monologues yeah and they had a restaurant on stage which our resident nerd foodie ian mayer would have enjoyed because you could have a meal while the play was going on and certain scenes would take place amongst the tables where people were eating we nearly booked that because it was my birthday so we were going to book that as a birthday treat but then kind of thought it might distract from actually enjoying and watching the play mm. But certainly for shocking things happening from people you believe to be audience members, I can fully believe that one. Yeah. And then the third one, Vincent Price. Technologically, could that have been done in the late 50s? It sounds very 4DX to me, having your seats tingled. I'm not fully convinced by Andy and his vibrating motor. I'm sick of people saying that to me. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's my bluff. Uh, I'm going to go for the uh, doctor in the audience. Is there a doctor in the house? And John? Um, I'm the the doctor. You're correct, yeah. The doctor is the made-up one. Um, The other two are very fun, but real. Bearing in mind what happened with your Las Vegas Starship Enterprise, did you actually check that this isn't a thing they did? No, of course I didn't bother. But (laughs) what I said... (laughs) Uh, the real gimmick was that they would give each customer um, a certificate for a $1,000 life insurance policy from Lloyds of London in the event that they die of fright while watching the film. They also stationed nurses in the lobbies and hearses parked outside the theatres. Mm-hmm. He, he did run out of ideas towards the end. So like there was 13 ghosts where he would just have like a pulley over the theatre and it would be like a skeleton on a piece of string that would just go over the audience at certain points. Uh, they were not all great. Has anyone seen the uh, the Disney attraction, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience? Yes. That's what I had in mind when Andy was describing it. Because mm. that has a great bit where, I mean, the idea, it's a 3D movie and you feel like you're in the audience and he's shrunk you and put you in a shoebox. They have little sort of nylon pieces of wire that just sort of flick the back of your legs. And obviously everyone's wearing shorts because it's Florida. On the screen, you see them tip the mice into the front of the audience, and then you just hear this wave of people going, ah, as people have the back of their legs tickled, and everyone thinks the mice are moving from the front of the auditorium mm. to the back, and it's a great experience. Mm. The way they, they don't do it all at once, to get like that, yeah. that rolling scream is one of my favourites. Mm. I was just watching the, the documentary I was talking about on Disney. Mm. Oh, the Imagineering. Yes. Uh, I was just watching that on Ratatouille in the ride there, and that mm. looks really, really good. It is. Oh, it's oh, great. It's tempting to go back to Paris just for that. Can we not talk about this? Because I should actually be in Florida now. <laughs> you Sorry. keep saying that. How can you always be supposed to be in Florida? <laughs> I'm currently off work for a fortnight, um, and I should be in Florida on the holiday that was cancelled in March. So we cancelled it in March and rebooked it for the um, start of October. And we're like, well, we'll leave it till October. I'll be sorted by then. It'll be fine, won't it? How optimistic you were. Mm. Um, and we thought we could do the universal <laughs> Halloween horror thing. But instead, yeah. I am sat here with you, lovely lot. Sorry. That was a terrible shame. Uh, I'll, I'll bring it back to something that will be slightly less depressing for you. Um, <laughs> a fun William Castle fact is that his B-movies in the 50s, along with those of Roger Corman, uh, the, the success of them is what inspired Alfred Hitchcock to make Psycho. I think he basically said, what if a good filmmaker made an exploitation? Just the same tricks. Yeah, yeah, or what if one of these films was made by somebody that was actually good? <laughs> Something equally arrogant, but, you know, it worked. Mm. 
So very good buff or bluffing. And I'd say I recommend manatee. I recommend matinee to everybody. (laughs) I don't recommend manatees to everybody. Quite big. And they might think you're a cabbage. They're lovely, though. Hard to fit in the cinema. Mm -hmm. Okay, so next up, we have Getting to Nerd You. This is a segment in which... Dan will question us about our nerdy loves, likes, and dislikes, and we will answer them, and hopefully you will get to know us a little better and love us a little more. (laughs) Or less, possibly. Or less. Well, that's the plan anyway. Uh, Have you ever killed a man? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am wearing a wire right now. (laughs) My first question is to Peter. So the hypothetical is you're hosting a, a Nerdfest movie night in the far future when we're all allowed to be in the same room at the same time, what film do you put on for us to keep us all happy? Oh, that's a tricky one. What I'd want to do, I'd want to pick a movie that I know is amazing, but that no one else has seen. That's going to be tricky. Andy. Andy. <laughs> Andy. No, I, the first Andy. part I said there was amazing job. <laughs> and in a good way. If you look up the dictionary definition of amazing, I think Mandy would be covered. <laughs> There are a bunch of these movies that it tends to be Andy and Hazel haven't seen. Can you remember what's on your list, Andy? Um, no, but I have the list here, so I will read it. Shamefully, I've never seen any of the Godfather films, but can we all stand to be together in the same room for 11 hours or however long the first one is? 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, I'm just I'm humiliating myself now. Metropolis, I really want to see. I have not seen Metropolis either. I'll happily watch that. Would you watch the disco version by Giorgio Moroder? Sure, why not? No. <laughs> I'll tell you what we should watch together is uh, Blade Runner. And when I start drifting off to sleep, you can nudge me and wake me up and explain <laughs> why it's interesting. <laughs> I think you want something fun and light. So yes. I think The Godfather might be a struggle. You want something that you probably don't want to have too much attention paid to if need be. So something quite fun and fluffy. So if we go off on a chat, I'll get a beer. Something of the order of, say, Gremlins or something like that, for yeah. instance, that has a sort shout. of fun and accessibility. And it could be Christmas time as well. It may well be. Yeah. Gremlins and Die Hard as a Christmas double bill is pretty much unbeatable. I would go to that Nerdfest movie night. It'd be great to edit them together so they look like one cohesive narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there a film that's you can do that with that's filmed on the same set as Gremlins? And you can see a lot of the same things in the background, so you can edit them together. So it was probably shot on the Universal lot, was it? It's um, it's Back to the Future. Ah. Yeah. Back to the Future would be another good one for a movie night. Very yeah. true. No, nobody would have any objections to putting Back to the Future on. No. Quite right. We'll break out the cinema screen. Uh, Andy, my question to you. What would your superpower be if you had a superpower? Hazel and I were actually talking about this last night. Um, <laughs> of course you were. And uh, we were struck by how serene, calm, and um, at peace with life cats tend to be. And we thought that the power to sleep 20 hours out of the day and not pay taxes would work pretty well. Worse with Donald Trump. Or at least it, it did until he died this past week of uh, COVID. Yes, <laughs> until he died or got better. Snip, snip, out it goes. So with your new cat superpowers, would you be like a Catwoman type or would you be more of a Jellicle cat? Um, would you be physically transformed by your cat ooh, powers? 
It's difficult because uh, I assume I would look absolutely fantastic in both leather and fur. Um, <laughs> to be honest, um, I think I'd probably go with uh, a jellical cat just because I'd want to find out what the fuck a jellical is. <laughs> Did you not listen to the opening song where they explain what a jellical is? I, I did, but my brain melted and started running out of my ears. So, um, mm. no. Yeah. Any other superpowers? Is it mainly that you could lick your own asshole? <laughs> I've got no desire to do that. Living the dream, John. Mm-hmm. I'd never leave the house. <laughs> so, John, my question to you What are your top three TV shows of all times? Oh, God, that's a difficult one. Well, Metal Mickey obviously is up there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be try and be a bit more interested and not say sort of Breaking Bad and The Wire and the ones that everybody go for. Um, I absolutely loved the Watchmen TV series. I really liked as a kid, and I wouldn't say it's in my top three of all time, but the Tales from the Crypt TV series was a lot of fun and introduced me to like a lot of film directors and stars and so on. That is an incredibly difficult question. If it helps, mine would probably be The Simpsons, Buffy, and probably Game of Thrones. Even with the last... Yeah, slightly dodgy last season doesn't discount several seasons of awesomeness before it. For me, it's the ones that I've obsessed over and watched and rewatched over and over again that are my favourites, rather than any objective quality. If objective quality doesn't come into it, why didn't you say Lost? That is number four, and Firefly would be in there as well, to round out a top five. I would say um, Star Trek The Next Generation would be in there, mm-hmm. definitely. Though when's the last time you watched it? Uh, fairly recently. Does it hold up? Yes, it does, yeah. I mean, obviously the effects are sort of dated, but the stories themselves hold up. Because we do seem to be approaching peak track fairly soon in that there are a whole load of different TV shows mm-hmm. on the go at the moment. There's Discovery still running, Picard running. The Pike spin-off, yeah. Star Trek Lower Decks, and there's another spin-off of some sort coming out as well. There's a teen or kid-friendly animated series on the way, Nickelodeon as well, so there's going to be a lot of Star Trek. Possibly too much Star Trek, who knows? Plus, obviously, the Orville. Yes, which is the closest thing to the next generation, isn't it? I think we're going to get. The thing that probably gave me a massive amount of joy as a kid would be the 60s Batman TV series. Mm-hmm. Still does. Still does. And when you watch it now, and you you know, so as something that works on um, multiple levels, uh, Batman 66 is up there. So yeah, Next Generation, Watchmen, and Batman 66. Good choices. So Dan, my question for you would be, which TV show have you rewatched most? Ooh. For a full series that I've watched and rewatched and rewatched, it's probably Firefly. To be honest, the 13, 14 episodes and the film are perfect. Just you can watch through them in a couple of nights and six months or a year later, you just fancy watching Firefly again and you can watch the whole thing in a way you can't really do with something that went on for seven seasons or forever in the case of The Simpsons. So, yeah, it's probably Firefly. Okay, uh, so that is our episode for this week. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please go online. Uh, messages on Facebook or Twitter. Are we on Instagram, Peter? No, I don't oh, think we're not we are. cool enough. 
No, it might be on MySpace. We've got a web page that we created on uh, GOC. No, no, can everyone just ignore that. He's talking rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it's at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And if you do leave us a message this week, Dan is going to do a special treat for you. Uh, yes, I am going to perform a one-man version of the Cantina song from Star Wars, but the 10-hour looped version that you can get on YouTube. Yes, please. But without the actual music, just me for 10 hours. What I like is that you've chosen something that will be incredibly hard and painful for yourself to do. That's how much I love our <laughs> listeners. Okay, well, um, that's our show, and you have been listening to... A man who will wear his mask. A man who wished that there was a fright break in Blade Runner. A man who has the little device to do an electrical tingle under his seat. And a man who wants a boogie boogie with Metal Mickey. <laughs> uh, boogie boogie doesn't mean fuck. <laughs> it does a bit. I mean, as robots go. I mean, it's approachable. You know, it's not one of those like... <laughs> like the, you know, like, like Gemma Chan in Humans. Like, she's an android, but you're never going to get anywhere close, are you? I mean, she's Gemma Chan. At least I'm going to aim low. I'm aiming for Metal Mickey. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> Okay, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. I've stroked a manatee. Yeah? Is that a euphemism? I've actually put on a scuba suit and got in a lake with a manatee and given it a stroke. Lovely creatures. Lovely creatures. Sea cows, aren't they? Yeah, doujongs. There was a song about them. How does it go? Do Jongs, do Jongs, <laughs> they're the cow of the sea. Do Jongs, do Jongs, also known as a manatee. <laughs> I genuinely don't know if you just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> I could have sworn you were going to say, I met him on a Monday and he was a manatee. A do gong gong gong. <laughs> 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 I hate when something is happening, exciting, and it's all edited together and all lit perfectly, and you get multiple camera angles and the special effects and music and everything, and then someone goes, cut, and they're on a film set. Because people don't understand how making films works. And cut, that's great, everyone. Excellent, we'll go again in a minute. (laughs) Script! (laughs) Yeah, they said, you guys, you guys, this is just fucking ridiculous, okay? I can't work with this. This guy is supposed to live in Edinburgh, but he's not got a Scottish accent. This Andy guy, what the fuck? (laughs) Hazel's just been written out for no reason. John, 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 just hit your marks, say your lines, and let's get out of here before 10, okay? Jesus fucking... I mean, Mandy, I watched that shit. I actually watched that shit to get in character. Fucking Nicolas Cage, what the fuck? (laughs) Jesus. Look, no one asked you to go method, John. <laughs> John would say go method. <laughs> <laughs> and cut, that's great, on the uh, pretending this was all the film set scene. <laughs> Look, I cannot work with this script. Clearly I can't do the American accent. I can hardly do Stop. the Yorkshire. <laughs> Stop, I will never finish. And then John woke up and it was all the dream. <laughs> <laughs>